Hey folks, Jeff Woods here. Before we dive into the episode, we wanted to ask a favor. If you like the episode that you hear today, we would love if you would leave a rating and review on your podcast player of choice. When you do, it helps us reach more people, which helps us make a bigger impact. It also helps us understand what we're doing well and what content you like so we can do more of it. And we read every single one. For example, JJ McGuire, thank you so much for your review, emphasizing the benefits of approaching relationships with the thought of how you can add value to other people without expecting anything in return. We really appreciate you being a fan of the show and thank you for leaving that review. With that, let's get into the episode. This is The One Thing Podcast where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. My name's Jeff Woods. I'm the vice president here at The One Thing Team. If you've read the book, then you know that on page 134, there's this image of an iceberg. And like all icebergs, the the tip is just that, that small little piece that you see above the surface. Yet the majority of its mass lies beneath the surface. When it comes to the one thing, the tip of the iceberg is the results that you get. We call it profit and the actions that you take or productivity. The challenge is you can't get the right results. You can't have profit if you don't take the right actions, if you're not really productive. And you can't truly be productive if you don't know what your priorities are. And you ultimately can't know what your priorities are if you don't know what your purpose is. It's that purpose and priority that lies beneath the surface. The reason we share this with you today is because today you are going to get to meet a woman who everything she has done is driven in purpose. In fact, we would encourage you as you go through this episode to listen for three themes. First and foremost, listen to where purpose comes into play for her. Listen to where narrowing the focus came into play and listen to how she moved from E to P in many different areas of her life. To give you some context, you're going to meet today Christina Sauce. She is the co-founder and president of Andela. This is a company that Mark Zuckerberg and his wife invested in through the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. CNN has called it the startup that's harder to get into than Harvard. And the whole idea of this thing is they realized that brilliance is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. Andela is on this mission to train 100,000 world-class software developers in Africa over the next 10 years. And specifically, they created this new model of education that funds itself through the work that they do. They train brilliant young software developers, and then they place them in some of the top international companies. Prior to starting Andela, Christina built education and employment programs in China, in Gaza, in the West Bank, in Kenya, and in her home state of Georgia. In her spare time, she serves on the advisory council of the NYU Stern Center for Business and Human Rights. She also serves as an educational topic expert for the Clinton Global Initiative University. She was also named as the 2014 New York Business Journal Woman of Influence and a 2015 Business Insider 23 Most Innovative and Inspiring Women in New York City Tech. With that, let's get into this interview with co-founder and president of Andela, Christina Sass. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. 
And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Where did this idea for Andela come from? The core idea for Andela came from my conversations with hundreds, if not thousands at this point, of young people all over the world that despite all of the persistence and energy and talent that they had, um, still being connected from actual jobs and lifelong career paths. It came from my deep frustration and anger at the fact that we were failing young people uh, by education systems, not having the pressure to connect young people with jobs and um, job providers not taking on the responsibility to work with education systems to tell them exactly what they need. So it came from getting to know young person after young person after young person that was so ready and so eager to be a part of a global marketplace and were not able to do that because of where they were born or how they look um, or some other factor that had nothing to do with their actual talent. When you start talking about education system, right? Uh, I think a lot of us know that there's room for growth. We'll we'll use the glass half full terminology around it. <laughs> plenty of plenty of room for growth. Yet you take a really big problem like the state of the education system. It's it's overwhelming for people. What was different for you and your co-founder? That's a great question. What was different? The time that we started Indela was the following. I was operating on the continent of Africa and could see the, the scale of the problem, the scale of youth unemployment, and also the scale of the possibility. And I saw what my co-founder was doing in his previous company as a very clear, scalable solution to it. And so it is Andela, uh, the founding story of Andela is unique from each of the founders' perspectives. We really do bring um, our own pieces to it. My piece is seeing a solution that was created through to you, Jeremy's previous company, that could absolutely be applied to an African setting, to an African context successfully. Let me just say a little bit more about that. So in 2014, in January of 2014, I brought Jeremy to Nairobi, Kenya, his first trip to Sub-Saharan Africa, to speak to a group of leaders across the continent who were all dedicated and engaged in youth employment in some way. Presidents of universities, uh, leaders of um, large companies employing people. And I brought Jeremy to speak about what 2U was learning. At the time, 2U was building the back end for online master's degree programs at top-tier universities like Berkeley and Georgetown, very highly career-focused degree programs like data analysis, nursing, teaching, things where the people who were getting into that were leaving there with jobs in hand. The reason why I really became obsessed with 2U at that time was because the 2U programs had a better job placement rate and a better academic outcome rate than their on-campus counterparts. And so to just draw a very clear to underscore this, a single mom from Dayton, Ohio, 
can go to Georgetown's nursing school completely online and have a better chance at learning more and getting a better job than a student on campus at Georgetown in Washington, D.C. That was groundbreaking, absolutely groundbreaking. So I brought Jeremy to talk to a group of you know, deeply invested leaders across the continent to say, geography does not have to be a factor in scalable. Here's a group of people that are qualified for this, training them for this, and putting them in those jobs. And so the difference, you know, the reason why we believe we can make a huge dent in the way that education systems think about this is that we're going to be able to prove out a model that can that can truly scale. Uh, the reason for that, I can go into more detail, but it's basically, you know, software developers are in such great need across the world that we can prove out that this is a more efficient way to get the labor market to actually work, get education systems and employers to talk to each other, to hold each other accountable, because Andela's doing both, if that makes sense. So what I'm hearing you say is, because I heard the story that you've got to go to Harvard or to Georgetown to physically be accepted on campus to, quote, get those dream jobs. And what Jeremy proved out with his first company is that you didn't even have to be there. It was more the online component that better bridged the connection between education and job placement that all of a sudden you're realizing this could scale because it is software. So even if it's 100,000 people in Africa, you get them into the right network or platform, it unlocks the keys to a much greater future. Yes, with one additional nuance. So you're absolutely correct that it was saying you do not need to be on campus. But what was also happening with you is that tech companies are just better at looking at huge pools of jobs that are unanswered and matching the job seeker to the job that's right for them. So if you look at a career counselor that sits in an office in a beautiful campus and what he or she could possibly accomplish, it is not the same as an astute marketing team that finds clients for said program that is also going to be way better at finding open jobs in nursing. So that was transformative. That was you know one big step. The second one was I brought Jeremy out right after they'd launched a new program in data analytics at Berkeley. And this one was the first one that they'd done where data analytics did not exist on campus at Berkeley. The employers in the Bay Area had an outcry of, we cannot hire data analysts. We desperately need them. They approached the university. So demand led, can you please start a program? And Berkeley's like, well, I can't just take on you know an extra campus to the left or right. And so to you, worked with them to speak to employers, hear exactly what they needed, build out the training, and then move people, find you know qualified people and move them through that and then connect to employers. That was a groundbreaking moment. And so my pitch when I brought Jeremy to, to Nairobi was to my employer at the time. It was the MasterCard Foundation, a $21 billion foundation operating exclusively for youth in Africa on employment issues was we need to find the data analytics issue on the continent or that can be done remotely. And then you find huge pools of job seekers that fit the criteria and rapidly move them into those jobs because you know that people are going to hire them. Then you you know complete the, the loop far better than the way that right now education systems and employers are. 
for the person who's listening to this, everything you just described probably made their head hurt a little bit, which I like. That's good. Because <laughs> we have this we have this concept of thinking big, really big, and then going really small. I'm imagining it's you and Jeremy as the founders, right? Yes. So, okay. You guys take us back to the moment when you're going, yep, we're going to do this thing. We're going to create Andela. We're going to solve this massively big problem that just made all of the One Thing podcast listeners' heads hurt. <laughs> well, this won't make their heads hurt. <laughs> there you their go. heads won't hurt. You know, so most people have had the experience right out of some education system where they're like, dude, everyone's asking for two to three years experience. Like, how am I supposed to get that? That is just a natural, you know, like most people that go to, you know, Harvard or don't have a cousin or an uncle or a father who's going to employ them in whatever business have that experience that you're just told, yeah, sorry, you got to have two to three years experience. And you're like, what do I do now? Because my, what I just did, the degree program I got clearly didn't qualify me for it and no one will hire me. So that's what we're, you know, that is what we identified as, as ultimately solvable that we can listen and deeply take in exactly what employers need and do a better job of educating with the explicit goal of employment at Lifelong Career Pass. Is that a little less head spinning? Sure. I'm trying to get clear. You guys have been in business for three and a half years now, and you now have how many employees? 948 as of my last count. So just shy of 950. Okay. We've been in business for two and a half years, and our number does not come close to touching that one. So I'm trying to imagine... <laughs> yeah, how do you go big? Right. In the moment when you have such a big vision, did it start by you and Jeremy doing everything? Or did you have to narrow your focus? Let me tell you about the a couple of moments at the beginning that were pretty pivotal. So in those conversations in Nairobi, we pitched a collaboration between our current entities, you know, and said, look, a, a to you like model would certainly work on, on the continent. And for, you know, very natural, good reasons, everybody has a five-year strategic plan. Everybody has their own board. Um, that was just going to be not impossible, but a very tough uphill battle and probably a long one to get something started in the, in the way that we were excited to start it. Meanwhile, we just started talking incessantly, constantly about how this just needed to exist. And, you know, what I was working through was, you know, in that example with Berkeley, you had, you know, hundreds or thousands of jobs open and an outcrying. And Jeremy pushed me in a great way to be like, no, no, it's not thousands of jobs. It's millions of jobs to make a dent in the universe, to, to change access to education that really prepares people for jobs that they are ready and excited for, you know, we got to be thinking much, much, much bigger. And he was absolutely right. And so we came down to the following criteria. We focused on what is most in demand in the global marketplace, most valuable in the global marketplace that can be done remotely. And that is very clearly software development. We chose Africa because of the scale of the unbelievable, you know, somewhat nascent, but the tech ecosystems where we knew that they were not screening for extraordinary IQ and brilliance in the same way that they're doing across Southeast Asia, um, across, you know, the Western world and Europe. That was just not being done there. And so we started out with a hypothesis that was very quickly proven 
um, that we would find extraordinary brilliance in a, a large population that could help us prove out this model and do it well with a small group of people first and then scale it massively. And that's what we set out to do. The other part of this is, you know, we had this original idea and then Jeremy went back to um, a gentleman that he had been mentoring for a while who was kind of trying to look at a 2U model in Lagos, Nigeria and replicate it. And um, and so we do have um, other co-founders that came on who were natives to, to Lagos that were software developers there in Lagos who just knew everybody and who were like, yes, this can absolutely work. So one of the key moments in our company's history is we came up with this idea and got our a pilot off the ground in May of 2014. We basically listed this on our Nigerian co-founders Twitter account on you know a couple job listing sites, but we literally didn't have a website. We didn't have a business card. No one knew us. And we got 700 applications to this job description that we put out, which was, do you want to be paid to advance your skills to being a world-class software developer? 700 applications. Then in June, for cohort two in Lagos, we actually got more serious about it. We went to computer science and engineering degree programs. We put out flyers, uh, you know, community centers, and again, listed it on Twitter and other things. For cohort two, we got 2,500 applications. And part of the application process is doing a, a test that's basically a proxy for IQ. In that pool, the, the testing service called us and they were like, what the hell is this job that you have listed? We've never had this many people apply for any posting we've ever put up. And by the way, you have 48 candidates in this pool that we believe to be in the top 2% of IQ in the world globally. And that is before we had any kind of a reputation. <laughs> that is, you know, hands down a moment where we were like, all right, quitting our day jobs, focusing on this entirely. There's tons of untapped brilliance here. Everyone we know in, in the startup world needs great software developers, and we can use education technology to solve this problem for both sides. So what I'm hearing you say is you and Jeremy get excited about the idea. You go to do a proof of concept. Instead of looking at all the things that you could do, you asked a few focusing questions. First, what's, the most, what's most valuable in the marketplace and in demand? Software developers. And where can you go where there's supply and they're not getting combed through by everybody? And you hypothesize that it would be Africa. You test this out. You got your proof of concept and decide it's, it's time to go all in. Absolutely. Yes, that is, that's correct. And Lagos was such an amazing place to start it. It's a country of 168 million. It's Lagos is a city, uh, sorry, Nigeria is 168 million people. Lagos is a city of 17.3 million people run on individual generators. It's chaos and intensity and um, amazing. But what we were interested in is Lots of excitement energy around the tech scene, some really compelling startups, really high quality computer science and engineering talent there. And so we were like, this is an, it is a very difficult, logistically, it's a difficult place to operate, but you go where the talent is and you knock down walls to create a new kind of culture that really retains, that attracts and retains that kind of talent. Christine, I'm, I'm imagining myself in your shoes because I know what it's like to start a company. And I'm imagining scaling to almost a thousand employees in three and a half years. What were the things that you had to say no to so that you could say yes to your one thing? Wow. 
You have to say no to so many things. I think it is a really um, tough lesson and one that every entrepreneur should like put in huge letters right across from their desk that says focus, 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 focus. <laughs> so for us, the the focus had to be uh, what is most in demand in the global marketplace in terms of software developers and what's the most efficient way to take somebody who's decent at that and has all the raw materials as a human being to be great at it and not waste one second of their time to get them ready to compete in a global marketplace. So what did we say no to? Other verticals beyond software development. I mean, tons of, you know, uh, but you could do this in, you know, other jobs that have, why not do this in nursing on the continent? Why not doing in shipping across East Africa? There are thousands of jobs in that, you know, even, even within the tech sphere, we had to really narrow to, okay, we're going to focus on these specific skill sets. Um, we had to narrow and say, what can we actually hire for and what can we not at all? We hire our developers in part based on their long-term mindset, that they are long-term committed to a career in software development. They're not career changers. They're not, they're deeply committed to a career path in that. And eventually, scaling solutions to all sorts of other problems with that skill set. We hire them based on our company values. Um, and so we said no to all kinds of people who were like the, you know, the hotshot developer in that, you know, environment that that, you know, couldn't believe that we wouldn't accept them. Um, but we're really looking for for people that um, have emotional intelligence, for example. I think the typical idea of a software developer is you are moody and entitled, you build beautiful things and then don't want to upkeep them or do the messy work and you sit with headphones on and you know are hard to approach. False for Andela. Utterly false. Our software developers have amazing social and emotional intelligence. But we had to be really restrictive to, um, to get to that and say no to a lot of people. We also have, when we say untapped brilliance, we've had over 90,000 applications to Andela. And we have 700 software developers, so over 950 people, 700 are software developers. So we're very, very selective. And, and we've, you know, there's an outcry of, you know, well, what about the next, you know, 10%? And you're saying no to so many people. This is a for-profit business that intends to dent the universe. And so we had to be crazy focused on these are the specific skill sets that we need and want to hire for. And first, we have to build a profitable business. First, we've got to get this right and be delighting clients. And then we can do all sorts of things. Then we can, you know, be able to serve um, others in a much, much, much greater way. But this we have to be great at first. So I want to pause on a few things because the average person who's listening to this probably doesn't touch code. Uh, they're not a developer. They're not scaling companies at, at this level yet. Yet there's lessons to be learned from someone who has done it. And the first thing I heard you say is over 90,000 people applied and you've said yes to 1% of them? 0.77%. 0.77%. I'm glad you are not detail-oriented. <laughs> so my question for you who's listening to this, when whether it's attracting customers whether it's hiring people, are you waking up trying to find the 80% of the people to say yes? Or are you waking up looking for that 1% that will say yes and trying to get everybody else to say no? 
If you ever wonder the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results, are you trying to do everything or are you trying to do one thing? So my focus on the business has been on the supply side, on finding the developers. Mm -hmm. And so the question that you asked for my other colleagues, you know, on the demand side who are looking for partner companies, they would be, they would fall into the 80%. I fall into the, into the 1%. And so uh, for most of the company's history, I was our operating officer and, and focused on our global presence, but mostly in Africa and on attracting that 1%, mm. under 1%. And so, yes. Yeah, so what I did was, you know, that there's a lot of things that happen in startup world that are just luck. One of the really lucky, you know, accidents that's uh, that's been, you know, hugely important for us is when I talked about those early tests that we gave people, we gave them technical tests. Um, IQ, uh, we tested for social emotional intelligence, and we tested for some areas of work ethic and how they approach their work. You know, those obnoxious tests that are like, do you have to turn in a project with all details correct or turn in a project on time? And you can only choose one of those. So we had a, again, we had a hypothesis about what would, you know, what our ideal software developer would look like. But what we did was we just tested that over time. And once we started placing our developers on uh, partner engagements with other companies, we saw who succeeded, who did off the charts well. And we went back and looked at exactly how they answered those questions when they applied. Mm. And so when I, uh, one of the best decisions I ever made in the company was I put our best data analyst, who is like obnoxiously young, he was like 24 when I found him, he's a critical member of our team. I put him on arguably our most important decision, which is who gets in the door? Who is an Indelin? And so, yes, we looked at every indicator painfully. We looked at how our partner companies were evaluating performance of our developers and what they said st- you know, stood out. Soft skills is a great one. We underinvested in soft skills at first. And so we went back and said, okay, some of that we can teach, some of that we can prepare people for, but some of that we just need coming in the door. So let's get really specific about what we need to see coming in the door and what the indicators are and focus, focus, focus on that. When we'd get you know, more input from the demand side, we'd use it to be more selective on the supply side. Um, that was you know, one of the decisions around you know, how we focus on that 1% that really made a difference. Here's where this applies to you who's listening to this. One of the three commitments of the book is moving from E to P, moving from being entrepreneurial to being purposeful. My question for those of you who have been in a hiring position before, how many of you acted entrepreneurially? Where you looked up, realized you needed to hire somebody, you posted a job, candidates came in, and you relied on your natural ability to make the best call. That has a ceiling over its achievement. What did you hear Christina say? You heard her say that they had a hypothesis for who the person might look like, i.e. a model. That's how you become purposeful. And they would go and test the model against the reality and continue to tweak the model. Where in your life are you currently acting entrepreneurially, relying on your natural abilities versus creating a model and a system so that you can shatter that ceiling of achievement and achieve so much more? Christina, I'm curious. You mentioned you, your job was to attract the 1%. How do you become the type of organization that top talent wants to work for? Yeah, this one's, it's just, you know, it's fun to answer because it's just, it's a passion of mine. And it's a reason why I, you know, believe that Indelo is my, my destiny. I think all entrepreneurs are a little crazy. 
um, you know, when you asked me the question of what you had to say no to, I answered professionally, but personally, there's a thousand things I had to say no to. I think we all called our families and said, I'll see you in four years. <laughs> um, but I think you have to answer the following questions. Like, can I get up and do this every single day for five years? Can I do that? And you have to say, am I uniquely qualified to do this? Mm. Is no one else solving this problem in this way? And so why, you know, why me? What made me, you know, is the fact that I understood working in an African context for five years prior to this and working with young people all over the world is that I know that the company culture, that a purposeful culture, that a long-term vision is actually what attracts top talent. There are, you know, certainly there's factors around pay scale and other things, but what we saw uh, on the continent is um, a very, very top-down experience that was truly not merit-based. And so what we did was turn that entirely on its head. We were like, we don't care what your CV says. I don't care what your resume says. I care what you prove you can do. I'm going to build a meritocracy and stick to my word. And then we're going to get all of you top performers who've been unrecognized. So you've been an, like off the charts IQ. You've been fixing computers in the back of an IT department at a bank. You are now in control of your own destiny. And I'm going to put you in an environment where I list out as a value that you must live by to be collaborative. So you're inherently a top performer. You've got top performers to your left and your right that are driving you, but you say all of you are going to succeed together. It is that kind of a culture that retains top talent. And by the way, we have a 98% retention rate of our developers. So Mm. it is clearly working. What would you suggest to the person who's listening to this, who works in an organization, whether they're in a leadership position or not? They're hearing this and they're going, yeah, that sounds awesome. That's not my job. How would you suggest they begin introducing or what idea can they introduce to begin making a cultural shift? So I would tell anyone who says that's not my job to take a pause um, and reflect on the fact that culture is in the air. It is the unwritten rule that says this is the way we do things around here. And so if you take a moment to go over to a colleague and say that what you did right there was awesome or, hey, man, that's not the way we do things around here. Uh, That's just not the way we act. You are owning your culture. It might seem like a small thing, but these are Mm. the small cues that everybody picks up. And certainly if you're in a leadership position, you need to be talking about and hearing, deeply listening to what people say is in the air because it might be really different from what you intend for it to be. There is no way that an owner or a leader in a company that actually wants to achieve scale is going to be able to scale themselves as the culture bearer. You Mm. can't. You must have people own the culture. They must. People create it. It's going to change over time based on who you bring into an organization. Um, So I think there are easy ways, which is, you know, one way um, to think of culture is, is what is rewarded and what is punished. That is a very simple question to, to ask people. Where do they feel like their efforts are, you know, actually being, being rewarded and where do they feel like they're not? Are those the kind of values is, you know, are people answering that question in the way that you want them to be? If not, what systemically, what, you know, are you putting in the water that you might not want to be? Are there other ways that you can do that? 
But culture, I think, is, you know, is absolutely critical and something that people really under in, invest in, um, in things that are going to make, you know, that have a real purpose and are going to make a real change. I'm imagining all the incredible experiences you've had over your career just because of the number of business owners that I've had the fortune of surrounding myself with, I know that it's not all rainbows and sunshine. What's been the single biggest failure that you've had and what did you learn from it? So many, you know, small failures. Let me think. One of the biggest failures I would say was, you know, I mentioned to you before this, the, this, you know, underinvestment in, um, in soft skills. And it's partially what you called out, right? It's like, well, we all have a good intuition of who's going to be good for you know for this job. Um, that was really uh, you know the wrong the wrong mindset for our software developers and for a lot of our team members to get out of you know yourself to get kind of over yourself in a way and look at the true needs of the business and what would fit it. So in this case, you know, saying no to these absolute hotshot developers who could you know. We're like super coders in one sphere, but they didn't show the willingness to learn. They didn't show the emotional intelligence. That was just painful. And in some cases, we did accept those people and they really tainted the water um, in a way that was just, you know, was just unacceptable. We had to learn, you know, no, our developers have extraordinary EQ and IQ, and we need to overemphasize just how important these things are. Um, and so, you know, we we lost some important partners in the early days because they're like, yeah, technically that person's great, but they never, they're not proactive. They're not telling us what's wrong. They're not communicating. And so we, you know, when we met, went back and fixed that, it really, it opened up a lot of doors for us. Before we wrap, Christina, we're big. We're, the people who listen to this are the type of people who don't just listen to a podcast and let content go in one ear or out the other. They like to have something that they can put into action. So out of everything that you have learned in your career, what is the one thing that you think people can do such that by doing it would make everything else easier or unnecessary when it comes to their professional career? So I firmly believe that when people operate from a place of inspiration, from a place of purpose, everything else is drastically different. And so what I would recommend is you have to really drill down to the problem that you're obsessed with. What is the problem that you're obsessed with? And you have to challenge yourself in a hundred different ways how to attack that. So what I mean is the budding aspiring entrepreneur might be really interested in the idea of just owning something. That will not sustain you in the hardest of times. That will not get you through the really, really rough days. But what will is... I am absolutely obsessed with this problem and I believe myself to be uniquely passionate about it enough to keep pushing, to keep knocking through walls. And, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I just, I just haven't found that. There's something that keeps you up at night. There is absolutely something that keeps you up at night that you feel like you can make a difference either in your current company or in something that you want to start. And you got to lean into that. You have to ask for more responsibility in that area because by nature of having that purpose, that moral compass or whatever it is that pushes you to do that, you will be inspired to do it over and over and over again every day. 
And that is not something that you can manufacture by promotions or pay raises. You just can't. Purpose is a currency all on its own. Find your purpose and the means to attack it will follow. Well, there you have it. My conversation with Christina Soss, co-founder and president of Andela. What'd you learn here, folks? I love what she said at the end about purpose. Purpose is a currency on its own. Find your purpose and the means will follow. Our question for you is, are you clear about what your purpose is? Do you have any general sense of what it might be? A lot of the work that we're doing behind the scenes is to help you get more clarity on this. In fact, we're in the process of writing our next book based on the one thing, and we believe that purpose will be at the core of it. What we can share with you today is that the path discovering your purpose starts by getting on the path. Our question for you is, how often or how much time a week are you intentionally pausing to consider what your purpose might be? Think about it right now. How many minutes a week do you intentionally stop doing what you're doing to consider why you're here? And with that, is your level of clarity reflective of your level of effort? Is your level of clarity reflective of your level of effort? What we find is that with the people who are in Living Your One Thing, when we ask them this question, whether it be clarity on their purpose, clarity on their priorities, clarity in any sense, it's always directly tied how much time they invest in it. If you invest zero time every week getting clarity on what your priorities are, you won't have any clarity. If you invest zero time considering what your purpose might be, then maybe you're one of those people who's just going, moving through day to day, punching the clock. Maybe you're happy with what you're doing, yet you're probably not fulfilled. The path to discovering your purpose starts by getting on the path. And make no mistakes about it, folks, whether that path for you is discovering your purpose, whether it's discovering how to build a thriving business, whether it's discovering how to strike that counterbalance between thriving professionally and thriving personally, there is a path, there is a model, and there is a system. The question is, are you searching for it? The reason we shared Christina's story with you today is here is an example of what it looks like to think really big about a big problem that you're uniquely positioned to solve, a problem that's backed in purpose, a problem that you would get excited to get up and tackle every single day. And to start by going really small, to look at all the things that you could do and to narrow your focus down to the one thing that you should do first. The path to getting everything you want starts by getting one thing at a time. There is a model There is a system for this. It's covered in the one thing at a high level. And for the people that want to make a commitment to living it, those are the people that join us in living your one thing. The question is, when will you take that next step? If you'd like to work with us, go to theonething.com slash membership. We would love to welcome you. If you want to go at it on your own, great. Who's somebody you can do it with? Because you know that your environment has to support your goals. And the people you surround yourself with either point you toward your goals or they point you away from them. We thank you for choosing to have us as one of the voices that you bring into your environment. And we look forward 
to being with you in the next episode.